in verse 25. This pedagogue would be a household slave. The Roman master would entrust their son to the pedagogue around the age of seven. And the pedagogue was not so much a teacher as he was a disciplinarian. Part of his duties would be to make sure that the child made it to his teacher. But outside of that, he was constantly under the domain, the dominion, the tutelage of this pedagogue, this disciplinarian, to learn Roman culture and etiquette and propriety and character. He was to be made a fine Roman by this pedagogue. And Paul has said that the law functioned as this pedagogue. But now, verse 25, now, now we are no longer under a guardian. The now that's being spoken of here is the now of Christ. The now of the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Christ. Whenever Paul says, now that faith has come, this is the fulfillment of what you have in verse 19 until the offspring should come. And, verse 23, until the coming faith would be revealed. And so whenever he's speaking of now that faith has come, the idea is that which faith was anticipating. One reason it was anticipating was because of the law. The law was driving them to anticipate and long for and look for. And now that he's come, the law's reign is over. It's the equivalent of verse 24, until Christ came. The reason why the now of Jesus makes a past of the law is because in Jesus, we're not in this slavery, this bondage, this curse, but we have come into sonship in the Son. And adoption has occurred so that we are no longer under the hard tutelage of the law, but are reckoned as sons. And this happens, verse 26, by faith as we are in union with Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons through faith. We're counted sons in the Son. Now with this, we must be careful to distinguish between the doctrines of regeneration on the one hand, and the doctrine of adoption on the other. There is a link between the two, but they are distinct. You can see the link in John 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so you might automatically begin to think that you're a son of God because you were born again. But notice, he says to those who believed, these are the ones who are born again, those who believed, he gave the right to become sons of God. This is speaking about adoption. Yes, you are born again and made a new creation. But the language of sonship throughout the Scriptures is not the language of something that happens because of how you are born. The language of sonship in regards to us being the children of God is always in terms of adoption. Jesus is the only begotten 
of the Father. The eternally begotten. It's said in the ancient creeds that God beget God. He puts this principle into creation. Each begets after its own kind, right? And so when an eternal God begets, it's not anything like what we would conceive of. It doesn't mean some time origin with reference to the Son. If God beget God, it means that the Son is eternal as well. Yes, there's mystery here. But the Son is the eternally begotten Son. Unique. We are adopted as sons in the Son. In union with Christ, we are made a new creation. And in union with Christ, we are adopted as sons. That the kind of sonship that Paul has in mind here is adoption is clear whenever you read in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time God sent forth His Son. Born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, Paul picks up on many of these same themes, writing, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So we're not under the discipline of this pedagogue so as to fall under fear. Fear of the curse and wrath of God Almighty for our transgressions. But now in the Son, we've received the spirit of adoption. Ponder the magnitude of what Paul has just said here. He has repeatedly, throughout this letter, argued in various ways that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we've come to see that that faith not only puts us in union with Jesus Christ, such that we are clothed with His righteousness before the Holy Judge of Heaven, but now He's telling us that that same faith, as it puts us in union with Christ, also clothes us with sonship. As we're in the sun. J.I. Packer gives this litmus test. It is a great one. I don't know that it can be surpassed. He writes, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his very outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. 
This may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which since Luther evangelicals have laid the greatest stress, and we are accustomed to say almost without thinking that free justification is the supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with His acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. But that's not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is even higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification gets you out of jail. Adoption gets you into a home. Justification delivers you from hell. But adoption gives you an inheritance in the kingdom. So understanding this, you can see how massive an argument this is for the central premise of this book, that we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Because if by faith you're reckoned as sons in the Son, then certainly, by faith, you're justified. And so as to make this plain, Paul provides the further reasoning that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, verse 27. As many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now with this, Paul may very well be alluding to the ceremony whereby that Roman boy that was under the tutelage of the pedagogue is now matured into manhood and would come out from under that tutelage in a ceremony called the toga virilis where he would put on the toga of manhood. And so here, this kind of maturity of sonship comes as you are clothed with the son. But instead of making all the more plain that adoption happens in the son, you might think that this confuses the matter. Is union with the Son through faith or baptism? It would seem absurd, wouldn't it, that after arguing so thoroughly that justification is not by works of the law, and centrally he's putting forth circumcision in that place, it would be absurd to say it's not by circumcision and then to remove circumcision and put forward baptism whenever he's argued so emphatically that it's by faith. Further, to complicate it a bit, if all you see is a problem here, you need to realize that your problem is bigger than here because this is no anomaly. Peter preached, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, Romans 6, Paul says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You'll find similar, similar language in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. And then you've got 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we make of this? One theologian has well argued that baptism in these kind of contexts is used as a kind of shorthand for the whole of conversion. It was absurd to them to think that someone would profess Christ and then not follow Him in baptism. While that's a good line of argument with many strengths to it, I think there is a much more biblical way of saying this if not a more sim- not simpler, it's more biblical. And it's this. Baptism is a sign. It's not the thing signified. It's a sign. Explaining how the sign of circumcision functioned in regards to Abraham, Paul explained in Romans 4.11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He was counted righteous by faith before he's circumcised and circumcision comes after that as a sign and a seal thereof. So baptism is a sign. What this means is it can be put in place of the thing signified. And that's why you would have references referring in the Old Testament to the uncircumcised, meaning those who are not gods and the circumcised who are. But that is not to say that it's circumcision which made them gods, but as a sign and a seal thereof. Whenever I say Alex is my son, no one mistakes the word Alex for being my son. The word is a sign. It signifies. It stands in place of. Likewise with baptism. What is baptism a sign of? Union with Christ in His death and His resurrection. The reason why Paul wants to use the sign in this particular place, however much of a danger it might be to his argument, is because the sign speaks to one being clothed with Christ. As the toga virilis signified manhood and liberation from the tutelage of the pedagogue, Baptism signifies that one is clothed with Christ. And as they are in union with the Son, they are reckoned sons and not slaves under the law's curse. Now, if verse 27 has caused confusion, verse 28 has caused controversy. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female. It's a passage that has hurt as much as it has helped. 
Scripture is dangerous when it's misunderstood and misapplied. Handling a piece of Scripture is like handling a nuclear reactor core. Context is everything. This is one of the favorite passages of many who are advocates of social justice. It's also one that is a favorite of those who don themselves evangelical feminist. Might as well speak of square circles. Many argue against racism and other evils from this text using the same hermeneutic, the same approach that feminists do to defend their views from this text. And so do you see the danger? Is if you pick up their line of reasoning to attack an evil, however evil that evil is, you've also at the same time laid the foundation for other evils. You've laid the foundation for their arguments for female pastors, for egalitarianism. Does this text at all then speak to racism and slavery, the oppression of women? Yes, but realize that the very radiation meant to kill cancer can also cause it. The worldview in which you place such a verse, the context under which you interpret it, can turn it from a such a thing as nuclear power giving life to a nuclear bomb taking it. We're not at liberty to alter God's words as we wish, even if for the purpose of countering some huge social ill. God didn't give us a lot of words to arrange into sentences as we would like. The same Paul, the same Spirit also says, that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But I thought there was no Jew, there was no Greek. Yeah, it's the same Paul who says that slaves are to obey their masters with fear and trembling, Ephesians 6.5. And that the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5. And that he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, 1 Timothy 2. You may not play pick and choose with the Bible without revealing that you don't really Think the Bible is the authority. What you establish upon such lines of argumentation is that you are. And this is why so many who start down with good intentions, with a good heart, who start down some kind of social justice path, have soon strayed so far from the faith that they're denying it because they've shown that their hermeneutic is filtered through a pagan worldview rather than that which the Scripture itself establishes. It's clear that Paul is not saying that these distinctions are altogether obliterated. What is he saying? The all of verse 28, you are all one in Christ Jesus, goes back to the all of verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. The point is that regarding one's status of sonship, 
all these other things that are true have absolutely no bearing whatsoever before the God of all. The only thing that matters is whether or not you are in the Son. There are a million things that are true about each and every one of us. And they are true because we live under the God of truth. But concerning your status of sonship, they mean nothing. Only this matters. Are you in Christ? If a Jew believes in Christ, he's a son. If a Greek believes in Christ, he's a son. If a slave believes in Christ, he's a son. If a free man believes in Christ, he is a son. If a man believes in Christ, he is a son. And if a woman believes in Christ, she is a son. Why did I say it that way? The point is that you are clothed with sonship in the Son and therefore an heir. And if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who He is. Believing men are part of the body of Christ. The bride of Christ. And believing women are reckoned as sons. And we should balk at neither metaphor. Paul is not speaking directly here regarding racism, sexism. He's speaking about our status as sons. What Paul says here has implications for things like slavery and and such, but what you need to realize is you have to start from the premises which Paul himself is laying down here and not co-opt this for some program of redeeming the world as you see fit. Further, though this speaks to the unity of the saints, that's not the emphasis here either. Does this have implications for the unity of the saints? Yes, and Paul lays them down in Ephesians 4. But here, the point that Paul is wanting to establish isn't that we're all one, it's that we're all equal. If you are in Christ, it does not matter what else is true about you, however true it is. This is what, and this alone, establishes how you stand before the Father. Are you in the Son? And if you are Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In the sons, in the Son, you are sons. In the offspring, singular, you are the offspring, plural. In the heir, 
The one to whom the Father gives all things. In the heir, you're counted heirs. We're no longer under a guardian, we who believe. But we are reckoned as sons in the Son. Ethnicity, status, sex, none of these speak to our position before God. The reason why every one of the efforts of this world are doomed to fail in addressing any social evil is because they are every one of them Christless. They are laws that may only restrain sin and at best make one to realize their need of a Savior, but they cannot change the heart. But in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been abolished. He's brought peace In Christ, slaves obey their masters as unto the Lord, and masters embrace their slaves as brothers. In Christ, in Christ, husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. They bleed for them. And wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Racism is brought down, slavery is undermined, sexism is destroyed in Christ. But all that's secondary. None of that's the point of this passage. Something far, far more astounding is being said. What's being addressed by this passage isn't how we can deal with sin, but how our sin has been dealt with. And if we're primarily concerned with finding our identity in race, status, sex, we'll miss the glorious point of this passage. We'll start to co-opt the gospel for some program that centers on us rather than the one that centers on Christ. This is the truth of who every one of us are outside of Christ. Damned, cursed sinners. But now... Now, the now of the only begotten Son of God become flesh, living under the law to achieve all righteousness for those who would believe, suffering its penalty and curse in their stead. But now, in Christ, the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign Lord, is our Father. One writer simply summed up this astounding reality when he said, it's true that we pray to God as our Father. But don't forget that the one that you address as Father is God. Yes, Let us call out sin as sin, all sins. Let us do whatever we can as the salt and light of this world to put some end to evil as we may. But know that the law cannot change hearts. It cannot make them sons of the Father. 
May we herald forth the guardian so that they might see the Christ in whom they, in whom every man, every woman, every ethnicity, every caste, should they believe, may be reckoned as sons. We cannot redeem the world and make it new. We don't have to. We herald forth the one who has redeemed unto himself a people by his blood and will make all things new. He will make the seed and spawn of the serpent to be reckoned the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, children of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for Christ and the richness that is ours in him. We are unworthy of such an adoption, but Christ is worthy of all praise and glory, and he's purchased us by his blood, and on the basis of that, we cry out to you by the Spirit, Abba, Father. Praise be to you. In Christ's name, amen.
of the centurion who pleaded to Christ for a slave to be healed, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By faith in the Son, we feast at the table of our Lord as sons. Presume on anything else, and you will be cast in outer darkness. This is a family meal. You are reckoned as sons in the Son. If you are a son, as signified by baptism, you may feast. If you are not a son, and have not been baptized in obedience to our Lord, and covenanting with a local church, then this table is closed to you. And so I invite you, covenant members of this body, members in good standing with an evangelical church living a life of faith and repentance, I invite you to solemnly remember, joyfully celebrate, eagerly anticipate, and to partake of the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's feast. Come. Receive the bread and wine. In Mark's Gospel we read, And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body.
Let's pray. Father, we joyfully thank you for the filling bread of Jesus Christ. We hunger, you satisfy. Amen. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we joyfully thank you for the wine of the new covenant, Christ's blood. We thirst, you quench. Amen. And now if you would join me in this word of praise. Praise we Him whose love divine gives His sacred blood for wine, gives His body for the feast. Christ the Lamb, Christ the Priest. Hallelujah. Amen. I love you church. Grace and peace.